From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The search for signs of life on Mars. NASA's next major mission, the Perseverance, will send the most advanced rover yet to explore the red planet. We'll talk about Colorado's connection to the mission and find out what makes this one different from previous efforts to uncover the mysteries of Mars, like landing in what used to be a giant lake. Then we'll check back in with a parent who was planning to send her son back to school in Denver so she could go back to work. That all changed in the course of just days. Now that it's longer, I think that's going to be tough. Plus, creating a bond between horses and people struggling to find their place in the world. And that right there planted a seed in me that made me realize that I didn't have to give up. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The countdown this morning from Cape Canaveral. Five, four, engine ignition, two, one, zero. As the countdown to Mars continues, the perseverance of humanity launching the next generation of robotic explorers to the Red Planet. The sound of an Atlas V rocket lit by United Launch Alliance of Centennial roaring towards Mars with NASA's next major mission, the Perseverance, a rover that will crawl around the Red Planet looking for signs of life. I'm joined by astronomer Doug Duncan from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Hi, Doug. Good morning, Avery. That never gets old, does it? Oh, going to Mars? (laughs) Not at all. You know, the search for life elsewhere in the universe is something that fascinates me and every one of my students that I've ever taught and anybody I sit next to on an airplane. And I think now our chances of finding life are going up if it's there to find. And if this all goes according to plan, this is going to be the fifth rover that you, na- the fifth rover that NASA has sent lands on the red planet. The first was Sojourner in 1997, then Spirit and Opportunity. Curiosity is still working. So tell me about the differences between Perseverance and these previous missions. Well, it's all the way back to 1997 when we sent the first little rover to Mars, and it was the size of a microwave. Okay, and then the last one we sent, Curiosity, is about the size of an SUV, and Perseverance is actually built on the same chassis as as, uh, Curiosity was to save money, Um, and so it's about the size of an SUV. It's the most complex uh, satellite we've ever sent to another planet. So these have gotten a lot bigger, and I imagine we can fit a lot more equipment on board. Well, the uh, equipment is more sophisticated. For instance, the camera on Perseverance is actually 17 cameras. It can do stereo. It can do color. It can do panoramas. So we're going to get a closer, better look at what's on Mars. And like you've said, one of the major goals of this mission is to search for signs of past life. Where did NASA choose to land this rover? The place that Perseverance is going to land is really fascinating. If our listeners get a chance, you should Google this and look at a picture because we have telephoto images of Jezero Crater, it's called. It's kind of like Lake Tahoe, okay? It's round, it's 30 miles across, and you can see clear as can be from space that it's got, or it used to, have a river running into it. 
You can see the delta. You can see where the mud flowed and solidified into rock. And it has a, an outflow. So obviously this crater filled up with water and it was pretty deep. And it, it flowed over the rim. And it's dry nowadays, of course. But in the past, it was filled with water. And why look for life there? You know, all the life on the earth that we know of um, needs water. Life is based on chemical reactions because life needs energy to grow. And the way it gets energy is to have chemical reactions, whether it's photosynthesis or, or uh, at the bottom of the ocean, we have life living on chemicals. But it always seems to need water. And this is a place where there was water on Mars. And what kind of life are they going to be looking for? I imagine it's not, you know, dinosaur bones. You know, it'd be easy if we could pick up a fossil bone. And actually, it's sedimentary rock in Jezero Crater. And so there's probably a little chance of finding little teeny fossils. But much more likely is to find evidence of the, the earliest life, microbial life, kind of like the earliest life on the Earth. And what's that? Well, the oldest fossils that we have are something really interesting called stromatolites. And they're still uh, living stromatolites down in Australia in Shark Bay. But stromatolites are bacteria and they grow in big mats, you know, kind of like a piece of paper or something spreading out on a surface. And if the place where they are dries up and becomes rock, you can find rock with bands in it. And the bands running horizontally are uh, the fossil evidence of stromatolites. I actually had a planetary scientist pick up a rock in my driveway here in Colorado and say, oh, look, stromatolites. And what did it look like? Uh, stripes in the rock, but the alternating stripes of uh, where there used to be living things and just the ordinary rock in between. And that, that kind of a pattern is something that Perseverance could find and, and is going to try and find on Mars. Now, it would be great if it sees something like that. If it doesn't, the really big advantage of um, Perseverance is it's going to prepare samples to come back to the Earth that we can take into a laboratory and do all kinds of analysis that you couldn't do um, remotely. And while it's on Mars, how is it going to look for life? By, uh, you know, looking for something like a stromatolite, the cameras are really sophisticated on Perseverance. They can zoom in. So if you're a geologist, you know, the first thing you do with a rock is you pop out a mic magnifier and you look really closely at the rock and you try and decide, you know, is this sedimentary? Is there something embedded in the rock? So you look at it. Secondly, you do a chemical analysis, and um, Perseverance has, has really sophisticated instruments for doing this. They get up really close to the rock, and they try and detect organic molecules. Those are the molecules that life is based on. They have a lot of carbon and hydrogen and oxygen in them. So a combination of chemical analysis of what elements and molecules might be in the rock and the appearance are the things it's going to be able to do right there on Mars. And will it be scraping or surface drilling? I believe Curiosity, the current rover on Mars, has a drill. It does. 
And um, the idea with curiosity was to drill into things and, you know, you, you kind of end up with little dust and pieces of rock and analyze that to see what's there. But the problem is when you turn everything into dust or little teeny pebbles, you've lost the original structure of the rock. And geologists and, and people looking for life, they would like a sample that's, that's preserved. And the really clever idea on perseverance, and I've seen its drill, uh, each drill bit is hollow, okay? And so when you drill down into the rock, the middle of the drill captures a sample. It's about the size of a piece of chalk or a cigar or something like that. Okay, and so when the drill comes out, in the middle of the drill bit is a sample. And that sample is going to be put in a, a sterilized airtight case in the rover, and it's going to collect different samples wherever it, it goes. And the, the cool thing is it's going to put them all together, kind of like in a box, and leave them on Mars waiting to be picked up and returned to the Earth. Okay, so tell me how that's going to work. How are they going to get samples from Mars back to Earth? Well, it's not UPS. <laughs> not even FedEx. Um, it's, it's a little tricky. The U.S. has started, but nowhere near finished, planning exactly how to do this. But the idea is, and we're working with European Space Agency to do this, is you send one rocket to Mars to land and pick up the stuff. You send another one that goes into orbit around Mars, okay? And so you go and you pick up all the samples. You go from Mars surface up to orbit, and you do a rendezvous, and you transfer the samples, and the thing that's in orbit around Mars then blasts off for the Earth and, and comes back. I mean, is this going to happen? How, how quickly is that going to happen? That sounds like it could take a while. You know, it took uh, uh, at least a decade to plan each of the rovers, and it's going to take about a decade to plan and execute the uh, return to Earth mission. Now, let's talk about another way that Perseverance is different than others. It's a sort of Mars 2.0. It's launching a helicopter. Yes, it's so cool. Uh, a woman uh, who works with me was one of the people who tested this little helicopter called Ingenuity. It's a challenge because Mars's air nowadays is very, very thin. And so it's kind of like trying to fly a helicopter at Mount Everest. Interestingly enough, I just read that a photographer got a drone near Mount Everest and even at that high altitude was able to carry a little camera and get cool pictures. Uh, Ingenuity is going to fly in the thin atmosphere of Mars and scout the territory ahead of where Perseverance might drive. Now, this is a big month for launches to Mars. The United Arab Emirates and China have both launched in the past couple of weeks. The United States is the only country to successfully land on the Red Planet, but China hopes to join the club with this mission. Why is all this happening now? You know, because uh, the stars have to align? No, the planets have to align. If you think of Mars and the Earth going around the sun, it's kind of like two people running on a track. The Earth is on an inside lane, and Mars is on an outside lane, and the Earth goes faster. So every few laps, the Earth goes by Mars. We lap them, so to speak, just like in a race. And every time we get really close, it's easier to go to Mars. And that's the time right now is the time to launch. And we should say, speaking of ingenuity, that helicopter, Lockheed Martin and Littleton played a role in figuring out how to launch it from the rover. 
Now, Perseverance has other science goals. It'll study the atmosphere, continuing work done by Colorado-built MAVEN spacecraft that's been orbiting the red planet since 2014. And I understand there's a small but significant experiment to see if humans might be able to make oxygen to breathe on Mars. Absolutely. Mars's atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide. We humans like to breathe oxygen. And so uh, it's got a little experiment to take a bunch of CO2 and try and break it down into O2, which is oxygen which is something we'll need to do if people ever get to live on Mars. That is fascinating. Thank you so much, Doug. Always a pleasure. The landing is scheduled for February 18th. Doug Duncan is an astronomer at CU Boulder. NASA's March 2020 mission carrying the Perseverance rover launched this morning from Cape Canaveral. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. News changes daily, and every day, CPR and NPR bring you reliable, up-to-date information, facts and advice, news about what's happening in your state. You have access to this important coverage thanks to the generosity of members who continue to make voluntary donations. Join them. Sustain CPR for yourself and for the benefit of the thousands of listeners who rely on Colorado Public Radio every day. It's easy at CPR.org. In rural Mesa County, the infection rate of coronavirus is only a fraction of many neighboring areas. But inside its large regional hospital, another story is unfolding. As part of our series on healthcare workers navigating the pandemic, CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg brings us this story of a husband and wife on the front lines. Every time a coronavirus patient gets off a ventilator at St. Mary's Medical Center in Grand Junction, you hear the same iconic tune. We actually play, what did we play? The, the song at, at St. Mary's when someone gets off a breathing tube. Oh, don't stop believing. Don't stop believing. And they play it over on the, on the PA because it's a, it's a really big deal to get them off of, of life support and they've been there for weeks. Don't stop believing. Hold on to that and the first people they often see are critical care nurses like Emily Kampf and her husband, Chris Lambros, who both work in the COVID-19 isolation unit. I kind of say it's like Mars because we're all kind of wearing space suits. They're waking up in a place that they're not familiar with and their heads are clouded with medications and... Um, They're seeing unfamiliar people and hearing unfamiliar sounds. And in this weird new world, the couple's prepared to give constant updates and reassurances to their patients. Because it can be days that they're asking you every 10 minutes, what happened, where am I? And that's regardless of age or uh, mental capacities. Or if they get grumpy at me, I always always think when you get your spunk back, that's that's always a good, good sign. Those people are lucky. The virus is killing patients at St. Mary's. It serves people from all across the region. From Farmington, San Juan's area, a lot from Cortez, southwestern Colorado at the very tip, from all the way to Craig and Rangeley, that we have a really vast network of patients that we get. Some of them are very sick and some die. The oxygen level is just profoundly low in their bloodstream. And that means oxygen to everywhere in your body. So that's that oxygen, you know, helps your kidneys, it helps your brain, it helps your heart. And if they don't make it, they often spend their final moments with nurses instead of family, as visitors aren't allowed in the isolation unit. I try and talk to them. I don't want them to feel like they're alone. I think that that's 
key that they're not that they they are not feeling like they're dying alone and I uh, I assume that they know that I'm there. He wishes he could impart this bedside perspective to those who question the need to stay vigilant about the virus. Precautions that you should be taking and basically people feeling tired of not being around the ones they love. Chris Lambros and his wife, Emily Kampf, know it's hard. They've even stopped their monthly dinners with her family. The threat of coronavirus is just too great. And even if you are one of the lucky people that um, have relatively few symptoms and signs and and effects, um, you don't want to be the one that gave it to your your grandma. Just... Try and stay healthy and understand it's not always about you, it's about everybody else. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. You can read this and other stories in our special series about healthcare workers on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic at CPR.org. The pandemic has forced another delay for Denver Public Schools, where students now won't be back in their classrooms until at least mid-October. Remote learning will begin August 24th. On Wednesday, district officials pushed back the opening of school buildings for in-person learning until at least October 16th, citing concerns about COVID-19. It was tough news for Tina Carroll. Her son Chase is going into first grade, and she'd hoped to get him back to class much sooner. I was almost in tears. I think it puts a lot more stress and pressure for me to figure out a long-term plan. Carol, a single mom with a full-time job, said she'll now tap into friends and acquaintances to see what she can do. Sadly to say, I'm going to have to get really creative. I'm going to have to see if there are any other parents that maybe we can come together. Um, If there is a parent that is doing remote and able to stay at home, or if there are any other resources that may be available to me, I'm going to take some time and do some research to see how I can put a plan in place, a safe plan in place, um, where my son can still be in a healthy environment to continue to do his remote learning. District officials said they made the decision to keep teachers and students safe Carol isn't convinced it has to be this way. When we were at our all-time high prior to now, we had doctors, nurses, grocery store, gas station attendants still being present and showing up to work. I myself showed up to work. And so it's really hard for me now to say that, okay, let's just stop going to school. Chase will do fine with remote learning, she said. Um, It's going to take a lot more work on my part because I'm going to have to now become a full-time teacher while still trying to be a full-time employee. It's going to extend past the traditional workday. I'm going to have to use every opportunity possible. I, I mean, I think before I was using our ride home from school to do, you know, some extended work with my son. But now I'm going to have to take every opportunity possible to make it more of a learning opportunity for him, whether that's breakfast time to lunch time to dinner time. I'm going to have to really get creative to come up with ways to make the day fun and so that it doesn't seem like he's in a learning environment to keep it consistent so that I can do it long term. 
That's Tina Carroll, whose son Chase is entering the first grade in Denver Public Schools. We first talked with Carroll and other parents, teachers, and experts in a special edition of Colorado Matters on Monday about the anxiety and uncertainty associated with schools starting back up. You can hear that discussion at CPR.org in the Colorado Matters podcast. When the Washington NFL team announced it will retire its offensive name and move forward with a new identity, it reignited a national debate around the use of Native American depictions in sports. As CPR's Paolo Shalseta reports, this conversation has been going on in Colorado for years with mixed results. Colorado last really grappled with this issue four years ago. It started in 2015 when activists and legislatures called for several dozen public schools to stop using offensive depictions of Native Americans. Alicia Goodsoldier is a member of the Navajo Nation and the Spirit Lake Dakota Sioux Tribe. She studied the harmful intergenerational trauma mascots have on Native American students. Our children and our youth face some of the highest poverty levels in the nation, along with some of the highest suicide rates. Our young people are being inundated with this negative imagery while also carrying and dealing with some of the modern challenges. Democratic lawmakers tried to require schools get their mascot approved by a panel of tribal representatives, but the bills failed. However, their efforts caused then-Governor John Hickenlooper to create a commission to study American Indian representation in public schools. Good soldiers served on the commission, which held meetings on the issue in different towns. We visited four communities, the Eaton Reds, the Strasburg Indians, the Loveland Indians, and the Lamar Savages. The final report recommended the elimination of American Indian mascots, imagery, and names, particularly those that are clearly derogatory and offensive. However, the commission's advice mostly fell on deaf ears. Some schools like Lamar High School and La Vita Junior Senior High School have continued using offensive imagery and names. Neither district agreed to be interviewed for this story. Both said through email they will address the mascot question at a later point. Former Colorado Senator Ben Nighthorse-Campbell says now that Washington's football team is moving on, it's time that local schools do too. He's a member of the Northern Cheyenne Indian Tribe. They ought to come into this century and realize that they're on the wrong side of history to keep using names if they're offensive to any minority. Some schools did take action based on the commission's report. For Ernest House Jr., the former executive director for the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs, Strasburg High School, whose team is named the Indians, was a particular highlight. They kept the name. They partnered with the Northern Arapaho Tribe in Wyoming to do an educational class with the students on what it means to be Arapaho. So it was a, a better partnership than when we very first started the conversation. The school also worked with a tribal elder to change the logo to be more accurate and respectful of Native culture. Strasburg principal Jeff Rass has been a strong supporter of changing Colorado schools' ways. He said schools cannot just change their name and call it a day, but they must incorporate Native American history into their curriculum. For us, the Native American plight is in many ways a genocide or at least an attempt at genocide. It should be taught in every school. House Jr. shares a similar view. He said Native Americans in Colorado shouldn't be immortalized through offensive depictions, but instead through educating students about historic injustices against those people. One of the recommendations that the group has had is to develop a curriculum to advocate that the American Indian history needs to be taught in public schools, to learn more about why these things are wrong, where this type of history comes from, you know, Columbus Day, Thanksgiving, things like this that, that have now continued to come and make people more aware 
of, of what that true history looks like. Just this year, Colorado lawmakers voted to stop honoring Christopher Columbus with a holiday, and the state is reviewing names of problematic landmarks. For now, though, the same team names that concerned the commission five years ago still stand at their schools. I'm Paul Shasta, CPR News. If I asked you, what was the first state to legalize marijuana? Would you say Colorado or maybe California? Try further down south. I am really proud that I can say that this little state did this. For a long time, they would say other people did it, but they didn't. We did. And it's good to be the OG. (laughs) The fascinating story of legalizing medical marijuana in America's deep south. On the latest episode of On Something on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. They're nearly indestructible and could be toxic. PFAS are a class of chemicals used in firefighting foam and nonstick pans. We've talked before about why health experts are increasingly worried about exposure. And as CPR's Sam Brash reports, tests have found a hotspot near Colorado's only oil and gas refinery. Ian Thomas Tafoya is an environmental organizer for Green Latinos. And right now, he's standing next to Suncor, a refinery with a history of really visible pollution problems. Things like plumes of orange smoke and explosions followed by falling ash. At least with the smog, we can see it. With the flaring, we can see it. But I would say average people aren't really aware as much about water pollution because it's something that's invisible. We look at the refinery from a bordering bike path. The complex is a jungle of silver smokestacks and catwalks. And in between is Sand Creek. The waterway runs along the site before meeting the South Platte. They're consistently putting PFAS into the water. We know that it's being tested and we know that it's there. Tafoya knows that thanks to a letter state regulators recently sent Suncor. It includes tests dating back to June 2019. And according to the results, Suncor emitted treated groundwater into Sand Creek with high levels of two well-studied PFAS chemicals, levels far higher than what the EPA says is safe. More than double, almost triple. That's very disconcerting. PFAS are a common ingredient in everything from firefighting foam to waterproof jackets. Since the chemicals don't really break down, they build up in the environment or in your body. That's why they're called forever chemicals. And a growing body of evidence links exposure to all kinds of health problems, high cholesterol, kidney and liver disease, maybe even cancer. The biggest concern when we get results back is, is there an impact to drinking water? Okay, so that's David Danny. He studies new threats to water for the Colorado Department of Public Health and the Environment. And he says a recent state survey turned up massive concentrations of PFAS in the groundwater at Suncor. That wasn't a huge surprise, though. The company acknowledges it used foam with the chemicals to fight fires or to practice fighting fires. Afterwards, the state worked with local health officials to test drinking water and private wells. From all of the testing and the data we have, we don't have anyone drinking water above the health advisory. That's backed up by the South Adams County Water and Sanitation District. They're the ones who actually put water in the taps in Commerce City, around Suncor. Kip Scott manages the system. He says the district treats and tests for forever chemicals, and levels don't exceed the EPA health advisory. And he's not worried about PFAS flowing into Sand Creek, either. We've modeled it for water flow, water quantity, so that we are reasonably sure that Suncor is not affecting us. 
but the test could affect Suncor. The state recently adopted its first ever limits on forever chemicals. Meg Parrish is with Colorado's Water Quality Control Division, and she says since the refinery isn't meeting standards laid out in the rules... We now have enough information and we're continuing to get information to at least propose some limits for PFAS in Suncor's next permit. In a statement, a spokesperson for Suncor says it'll work with state regulators and is already looking at ways to treat the water flowing into Sand Creek for PFAS. But all of that doesn't put Olga Mahares at ease. The school administrator lives near Suncor, and she says like most people in her largely Hispanic community, she doesn't drink the tap water. But I am cooking with it. Brush your teeth, you know, take a shower, like do all that stuff. Mihare's son, who's in his 20s, has already battled thyroid and brain cancer. He's alive, but she says as a parent, she can't stop wondering if there's some explanation. Doctor said, you know, I, I will never know, so stop looking. Stop trying to wonder what happened or why, because um, we're never going to know. But all this news about forever chemicals, she says it makes it even harder, even impossible, to keep those questions off her mind. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Seven years ago, professional horse trainer Ginger Gaffney got an unusual call for help. It was from a ranch near her home in northern New Mexico that serves as an alternative to prison. And the ranch was having horse trouble. Gaffney went for a visit and was astounded at what she found. She's written about it in her new memoir, Half Broke. Gaffney and Ayla Jarvis, a former resident of the ranch, spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Ginger, Ayla, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having us. The residents of this ranch are people who've had run-ins with the law or have substance abuse problems. They're in the program to turn their lives around, and they run all aspects of the ranch, from cooking to livestock care to administration. There are no wardens or guards. Ginger, why did they ask for your help? Because the the horses were uh, running after the residents and chasing them down, a few times a day, every time they brought the trash out, people were hurt. Their ankles were uh, sprained, wrists were sprained, and then there was also some very bad horse accidents that had happened. And they had sort of, they didn't know what to do about it. And they reached out. Uh, they, they found my card at a Española feed store and called me one day. Ginger, on your first day at the ranch, the horses chased you and some of the residents into the hay barn. One of the horses is named Hawk. Can you read what happens next for us? The horses roar up to the wooden gate at a gallop, a band of snaked bodies twisting and kicking dirt into the air. They level their heads and necks down to the height of their shoulders, flat, thin, and ready to strike. It sounds like a hiss, but it's more like spit. Hawk opens his mouth, and his teeth jut forward at us. He snaps his jaw shut and curls back his lips. The force of it shoots a mist of saliva all over our faces. He can see us, they all can, but they cannot get to us. Their dark, hollow eyes are unrecognizable to me. Watching them bare their teeth at us like predators, as if we were their meal, makes me think these are not horses." Ginger, you've worked with horses for years, many that had serious problems, but explain how this was different. Well, you rarely see the instincts of horses reversed, where they're really a prey animal. They're fairly easy to dominate because of that. They're a flight animal. They flee before they fight. So what they did at at the ranch was they had reversed the flight instincts and it turned into a fight instinct. Mm -hmm. And 
you rarely see that. Occasionally you might see it in a stallion, but a whole herd of horses acting like that is not ever seen. We'll get back to the horses in a moment, but Ayla, you were 26 when the court ordered you to the ranch. It was a few months before Ginger got there, and this would have been your third time in prison. You went to the ranch instead. What was going on in your life when you originally ended up in prison way back at age 19? At the time, I was working in a family business that was selling marijuana, and we were arrested on a federal case, all of us. And so I spent four years in prison the first time, and then I was paroled, and I did really well for a while, and then I relapsed on heroin and then committed a series of small crimes and then had a parole violation and picked up another state case in New Mexico, actually, and then went back to prison, and then they were going to sentence me to a third term in prison when I had the choice to go to Delancey Street. And we should say um, that the ranch is called the Delancey Street Ranch, which is part of a San Francisco-based organization. That's correct. And what were your first impressions of the ranch? It was very tough. I, I really didn't know what I was getting into before I got there. And I came in, and they dressed me in really baggy clothes. And I, I had to pretty much shed the exterior of who I thought I was. And I had to work and I had to hold myself accountable and I had to be honest and I had to wake up and, and do something every day, which was a lot different than the prison scene that I had just come from. I wanted to leave the first year I was there. <laughs> I didn't want to be there <laughs> at all. I thought prison was a lot easier. And so I just remember crying. I remember breaking down. I remember just becoming really hopeless because I didn't think I could make it through the program. So you'd been at the ranch for seven months when you were assigned to the livestock team. And these are the residents who care for the ranch animals. What was that like? I didn't want to become part of the livestock team at first. I was very apprehensive. Um, at that point in my stay, I, I was very hopeless and I was finding trouble caring for myself and for others. And I was at a kind of a despondent state where I didn't I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to either die or go back to prison. And that's where my mentality had, had shifted to. It was very narrow. So my mentor at the time kept encouraging me to join the livestock program to hopefully help me get out of myself and, and help me um, do something different. Because I was at a, at a juncture where Delancey Street was like, we don't know if we can help you anymore because you're so lost. And the mentors are other people who are living at the ranch who have been there longer than you had. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, Ella, we'll talk about your experiences early on with the horses, but let's get back to the horses themselves. Ginger, you chose to begin your work with Hawk, this aggressive horse that we heard about earlier. And by the end of your session with him, you were able to put a halter on him and to pet him. What mindset did you need to make that happen? Well, Hawk was the leader of the of the herd, and it was real clear. And, and being a horse trainer for 25 years, and you need to solve a problem, you figure out who's in charge. And Hawk was in charge. And so, what I know about horses is none of them really want to be number one. It's the most stressful part of the herd. You're in charge of finding food, you're in charge of safety, and very few horses really want to be number one. Though that, that whole herd of horses all wanted to be number one. But Hawk was the leader, and I had to shift his mentality to accept the fact that he could be number two. And it was a very, he was very aggressive. And number two after you. After me, that's right. I was number one. And with Hawk, he had been able to dominate 
almost 100 people at this ranch. And so the first scene in the book is me working with Hawk in the round pen, trying to convince him that I was something that could be respected. And you weren't just a horse trainer at the ranch. You had to find a way to teach the residents how to work with these horses. And they weren't typical horse handlers. How did you go about teaching them? Uh, for the first couple of months, I hauled my horses over to the ranch. Um, I would work with the, with the Delancey Street horses myself in the round pen, trying to create some safety and some respect. And then when, on the days when I worked with the residents, I would haul over about five horses and we'd put the Delancey horses up so they couldn't get to us. And we all worked with horses that were trained. And it was a, a big surprise for the residents because they'd never, most of them don't know horses. And they were like, wow, is this what horses are supposed to be like? I didn't know that. <laughs> you know. So it was just getting them to have in their bodies a way of moving around horses that horses could relate to, like being able to look up, open up their chest, kind of walk with confidence, but with ease at the same time, not with like angry movements. And so I was just teaching them body language. It's also noticing the horse's body language. That's too. right. It's a whole world of language that has no words and very little sounds. And a lot of the guys would be, you know, talking and going, come on, man, come on. get." And I'd say, wait, 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 they do not understand you. Your whole body needs to talk, not just your mouth. That subtle things are really more effective than the things that you could do with whips and ropes you could do with your body. You and Ella worked together at the ranch. Ginger, what were your first impressions of her? Oh, my goodness. Um, I actually have pictures of Ayla, and sometimes I look at them just to remind me because she's made such a transformation. But Ayla would never look up. She had the habit of pulling most of her hair out from around her face and twirling it. And I was a little overwhelmed because I'd never worked with somebody that despondent. So I had to really wake her up, and I was afraid for her, for her safety because she was that far gone. I mean, she just wasn't with me. And so often I'd be like, I'd have to clap right in front of her face, or I'd have to really scream at her to get her to look up. Because you didn't feel she was paying attention. She was not. She was gone. You know, she was not just not looking, but she wasn't even there. And Ella, let's talk about one of your first experiences with the horses. Ginger asked you to hold a horse's hoof so it could be trimmed. And what happened next? Well, it was raining. I was soaking wet. I was tired. And I, I didn't really understand how this was going to help me in any way. <laughs> but I was willing at that point to pretty much try anything just because I, I had become so desperate. And I started to feel a little bit of a change just from being out there around the animals. So when she asked me to, to trim the hoof, I, I was a bit curious, but I, I really didn't see the benefit in it. But I, I did it anyways. And I just remember getting jostled around, the horse rearing up on me, getting thrown around. I was bleeding. I was soaking wet. And I just had this determination to finish it out. And, and that right there planted a seed in me that made me realize that I didn't have to give up. I didn't have to give up on my life, myself, or anything anymore. And so it was that moment that I just wanted to finish. And I didn't want to just finish the one hoof. I wanted to do all four. <laughs> I was absolutely determined. I spent hours out there until it was dark. And I, I uh, found something in me that day that just planted a seed of hope. And that was early on. How did working with the horses affect you after you had been with them for a longer amount of time? Oh, it just completely opened me up. And I, I, I remember waking up one morning and hearing the horses neigh outside, and I thought to myself, I said, huh, I wonder if they've been fed yet, if someone's been out there to feed them and take care of them. 
And for me, that was like an instant click that, wow, I actually care about something. Because not caring for so long, not even caring about myself or anybody around me or any living thing for that matter, um, to actually realize like I have an interest in something else's well-being, especially a living creature, was very transformational for me. And from that point on, I was like, you know what? I can care and I can care about myself. And then that transferred into caring about other people and in turn caring about my future. And then I remember riding a horse and, and feeling like the horse was an extension of myself because Ginger would always say, think of the horse's legs as your legs. And so when they would run fast, I say, I would feel the sense of power. Like, you know what? I can run fast too. I can, I can take hold of my life and really, and really change. And I, they helped me believe in change. And I had to really get honest with myself because with horses, you have to be completely honest and open and you have to be completely present when working with them. If not, then they'll run all over you. And I just, I was tired of being run over by myself, by addiction, by everything else. And I just, I, um, I found a strength that I didn't know that I had working with him. And Ginger, eventually you felt like you fit in at the ranch in a way you hadn't felt before. Um, what was it about being among a bunch of recovering addicts and offenders that felt right to you? Um, growing up, I came out... Um, as a queer woman, like in my high freshman year of high school, but I came out, but I was still really, you know, the other because at that time it was the seventies, and so I was really alone. And I don't know that that was completely what made me such a isolated human being because I grew up as an extreme introvert as well. Like I didn't speak until I was seven years old, and really didn't speak a lot until college. So there was a time in my life that I was a ghost to myself, just not there. And everybody around me knew it and nobody knew how to reach me. And when I got to the ranch, it took a while for me to realize how much the shapes of the people reminded me of myself. And I ended up going back in time in my memories and just feeling how desperately isolated I was and alone. And I couldn't help but see myself in them. I have never been, uh, had addictions, but I had a time in my life that I think now, during this time, you would have called it depression or close to even suicidal, perhaps, you know. And I saw it all around me there in the shapes and the forms and the body movements. And it was like looking into a mirror. It was pretty hard, pretty... Um, I think I started feeling shame again, you know. Mm. And it just, it woke me up. And it also, it woke me up in a way of my community because... I wasn't somebody who had a, a like a soft heart around addiction. I've been robbed about four times, all by addicts, and they steal my saddles and my bridles, and I had a pretty ugly attitude. And when I started stripping away, and I was watching people weekly strip away, and I started seeing people for who they really were, and it just brought up a lot of compassion that I never really had for addicts. You still volunteer at the ranch. You also do other work with horses and people in recovery. Yes. What makes horses good for this kind of work? Oh, absolutely. This is like the message for me with the book is people in recovery have really uh, lost it themselves, lost their bodies. And Ayla was one of the people who just was gone. Her body was no longer a functioning body. And we see so much of that in our communities, right, on the streets and on the corners. Horses demand that you get into your body. And for me, what I've learned about recovery is, is the recovery comes up through the body and then into the brain. And so the brain can function after the body gets back to work. And so it's step by step getting people back into their bodies. Being in the presence of an animal, like Ayla said, is like 
um, wakes you right up because you have to be right there on your feet, your whole body present. And so recovery and horses, to me, it's an absolute match. And Ayla, you're out in the world again. Talk about what you're doing these days. <laughs> I'm doing quite a bit, actually. <laughs> uh, sometimes I think I'm doing too much. Um, so I'm working on finding a balance now to kind of find some downtime because I've realized that's important in recovery as well. <laughs> So I am actually doing quite a bit. Um, as soon as I left the ranch, I started riding with a farrier, and a farrier is the horse shoer and horse hoof trimmer. And that's kind of what, what my first introduction to the horses was with Ginger. And so w- once that helped transform me, I, I really wanted to continue to shoe and trim horses. And blacksmith is one of the things that I do as well. And so I, I learned from, I, I apprenticed with a lady for over a year and started my own farrier business called ANA Hoof Care. And I do that with a partner who went to horse showing school also from the program. And then that helped me get into the place where I live right now, which is the ranch. So I, I work there and I pay most of my rent through working with the horses. And the horse community really took me in in a lot of ways. As soon as I left the program, I really relied on them and they helped me. They opened their doors to me and opened their arms to me and homes to me. And I was able to really stay grounded through the horses. The other thing I do is I work as a full-time event and wedding planner at a golf course. That is a lot. Yeah. (laughs) And then I also do a part-time beekeeping. I have my own little business. It's called Best (laughs) Beesness. So I do beekeeping. And then I'm also a college student right now at the Central New Mexico Community College. So horses really remain an important part of your emotional health. Absolutely. Yes. They keep me grounded and they keep me honest. And anytime I'm feeling a little bit stressed out or overwhelmed with life, I know if I go out there with the horses, they're going to be a reflection of my my energy level. And so I really have to calm myself. And I find it very therapeutic to even go out and muck, which is pick up their manure. <laughs> it's a form of therapy for me. Anything to be near them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And Ginger, we talked about how you felt like you never fit in for most of your life. Now you're a white woman living and working in a Hispanic Catholic community in New Mexico. How do you fit in there? I think I fit in really well. I, you know, what matters most in my valley is um, work, hard work, how you take care of your land, and how you take care of your animals. And in my community, people come to me to ask me to help them when their horses are injured. They ask me to go into the mountains and help them gather their cattle. Being queer and being white, and even though I'm like the minority in my valley, I've always felt really welcomed. I've always felt really appreciated. And I feel like it's a real example that, you know, people that are queer can live r- rurally and feel safe. I get that question a lot when I'm out reading for the book because I think people would like to move out of the city. Some people would like to live how I live, but they've never felt safe. So I think my story is a a little bit of hope for that. The book lays bare a lot of your life and raw emotions. How does it feel to have people reading it now? Oh, it's really, I'm such an introvert that I'm pushed on this one. It's very hard to get out into the public. Um, You know, if I can do it, then other people can do it. And that's what's happening when I'm out to reading. I just try to be really honest about my own introversion and that um, this is really hard for me. And, but I, you know, I believe in what we did together and it's pushing me to get the story out. 
And maybe there are people out there that it'll really resonate with. I really hope so. But that's my motive and that's what's behind. That's what's pushing me because I would not be doing this on any natural way, any other way. (laughs) And Ayla, what was it like to read someone else's portrayal of you? It was great to see what somebody else saw. Um, but at the same time, in, in your in my head, I, I really built up that I wasn't as bad as I thought I was. And so to realize how I was actually portraying myself and how somebody else uh, saw me, it was a uh, it was pretty eye opening, to say the least. And it really brought me back to reading reading Ginger's book is really brought me back to uh, the places and the transformation process that I went through. And it's it's made me feel a lot better. Um, because I realized everything that I, all the challenges that I had to go through and and really relive those. And it just makes me really proud to be where I am today. Ginger, Ayla, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank, thank you, you for having us. Professional horse trainer Ginger Gaffney's new memoir is Half Broke, about working with troubled horses and the residents of an alternative prison ranch in New Mexico. Ayla Jarvis is a former ranch resident, and her story is part of the book. They spoke earlier this year with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play podcast Colorado Matters. Again, that's play the podcast Colorado Matters. Thanks to our executive producer, Carl Bielek, producers Andrew Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, Alexander McMahon, audio engineers Natasha Watts, Pedro Lumbrano, Michael Hughes, Shane Rumsey, Patrice Mondragon, and Matt Hers. I'm My co-host is Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.